Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I want it to matter. I want it to matter. It takes an enormous amount of time, money, energy. It takes me away from my family. And um, anytime that you kind of give people an emotional access to something that they... and a compassion for people that they might not otherwise have it for, Mm -hmm. that feels like it matters. Film and TV producer Nina Jacobson's credits range from The Hunger Games to The People vs. O.J. Simpson to Dazed and Confused. A New York Times article described Jacobson as a woman taking, quote, revenge on Hollywood's old boy network. In this Work It session, Nina tells Erica Williams-Simon about how she started and runs her own production studio and where she gets the ideas that go on to become blockbusters. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, host of the Work It podcast, recorded live at WNYC's Festival for Women in Audio. Good morning. I can't even believe you all are here at 9 a.m. in L.A. Give yourselves a round of applause. (laughs) Uh, I think one of the things that's, for me, been so transformative about these past two days, um, yes, the panels have been great, the conversation has been wonderful, but really it's just being able to be in the presence of, thank you, um, being able to be in the presence of brilliant, creative female storytellers. Um, you know, we don't often get to congregate like this, and so every time I get in a room, I love to suck up whatever energy and wisdom I can gain um, from my peers, and certainly from people who have been wildly successful women storytellers. Um, and so. I'm honored today to be able to do that with Nina Jacobson. Um, Nina is quite literally a force, um, and also her company is is called Color Force. Um, But she's been a force in Hollywood for over 30 years um, as an executive at Disney, also as a producer now running her own company, Color Force. She is behind um, such franchises as Diary of a Wimpy Kid, small films like The Sixth Sense, and one that you may have heard of, Hunger Games. Um, and out of all of those, my absolute favorite, the American Crime Story series, and if you're not familiar with it, did you, anybody see the O.J. Simpson, the first season of it? That's because of Nina. Um, so in, in addition to all of this work, she's got such a diverse body of work. She's also been very vocal and, and outspoken her entire career about the need for and her own commitment to uh, increased inclusion, inclusivity, diversity in entertainment, both behind the camera and front of the camera, and everywhere that she goes. Um, so I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today, Nina. Let's give Nina a round of applause for being here. All right, so my first question to you actually has to do with why you're even here at a podcast festival, and it's because I hear you are obsessed with podcasts, right? Yes. Okay, so tell me what you love right now. Like, what are you loving and listening to? And then in general, I want to know why you love podcasts so much. How has that, if at all, informed your work? Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll just, I, that's why I brought my phone out here. I thought I would have to maybe have a quick peek um, at what's currently on tap. On my way over, I listened uh, just on my drive today. I mean, part of why I love them is because I live in L.A., so I'm in my car a lot. Yep. And I have, I'm a very, like, a restless mind, and I just, um, I just have, like, a kind of nonstop appetite to hear stories, to hear smart people, to just, uh, I, you know, I'm an omnivore. So mm-hmm. um, uh, 
my, right now, I mean, every day I listen to The Daily without fail. Um, every night I'll listen to the Rachel Maddow, you know, podcast version of her show. Um, and I often just prefer listening. I don't know. I, I, you know, when it comes to news and things like that, um, the listening just is, I, I can do it when I'm walking my dog. I can do it when I'm dogs. I can do it when I'm, you know, in the kitchen or, mm-hmm. you know, running from one place to the next and certainly in my car. And when you say prefer, you mean over watching, Yeah, right? like when it comes to, like, an interview format or a news format and even some of the storytelling. I mean, obviously, I love movies. I love television. But uh, there's a certain pleasure to audible experiences. And mm-hmm. I, I listen to a lot of audio books. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, right now I would say, of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, Ear Hustle, mm-hmm. which I love. <laughs> Ear Hustle fans. Um, I am, I, I love the, I love Reply All, um, Radio Lab. I just listened to Stay Tuned with Preet this morning on my way in. Um, One fan, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, criminal, <laughs> I, you know, Criminal's fantastic. And then I'll, you know, some of, like, I'll go specific for, like, the Lawfare podcast if they have something that's interesting to me. And then some of the things that are not, like, in season right now that I love. I love Accused, Crime Town, we're actually uh, doing as a, you know, uh, we, we are developing it as a TV series oh, wow. at FX. Um, I listened to Richard, Missing Richard Simmons. I listened to Mogul, which I loved. S-Town, obviously. And I actually <laughs> just... You uh, <laughs> My son and I devoured uh, The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel, which I thought was an incredible uh, narrative podcast. So that's a few. That's like just <laughs> that's a more few. than a few that you love podcasts, which is amazing. But okay, so you said you like listening to them because, first of all, you prefer listening, right? The audible experience. Um, but what about it has informed your work as, as you know, a, a, a storyteller in a visual medium? Well, I think for one, you know, just great storytelling is great storytelling, mm-hmm. and in my, for what I do, I just um, I always I just need a lot of stimulation, just as a person, but also. Like the, you know, that yes song, don't surround yourself with yourself. It's very mm-hmm. easy when you are immersed in production and development that all you're reading are scripts, all you're watching is, you know, kind of your, what you have to be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and just pulling in like new ideas, new thoughts, new ideas of characters, new ideas of s- sort of storytelling techniques, all of that, it keeps me fresh and I draw from it. Um, when I'm trying to solve, you know, we spend a lot of time as a dramaturg, you know, in my job. I've spent mm-hmm. quite a bit of time giving notes on scripts, giving notes on what I've read or seen. And I find that if I can, like, sort of pull from different, you know, medium, media, different, uh, completely different subjects, mm-hmm. but that kind of cross-pollination just sort of keeps me inspired mm-hmm. and helps me to... to uh, Sometimes, you know, you might find, a, you know, a, an idea for a solution for something you're working on from a very unlikely place. So you mentioned, you said, you know, good storytelling is good storytelling no matter the medium. But I'm curious to know, when you listed off, you know, just a handful of the, the podcasts that you're listening to, and then you said there was one that you're actually in the process of developing. Which one was it? Crime Town. Crime Town. So you're in the process of developing that. How do you know of all the good stories and the good storytelling that you consume, which, which are the stories that you should be telling, right? Because there's good and then there's right for you and right for your, your, both your voice, your point of view, and even your investment. How do you make that decision? 
Well, with something like Crime Town, you know, it has um, it has a great protagonist for one. Okay. So obviously, you know, uh, when you're looking at you know adaptation, you're always looking for well, how am I going to sustain this? Whether it's two hours or ten hours or you know, it could be five seasons of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking for um, character dynamics, a character premise, basically, that is sustainable. And so, you know, something like Ear Hustle, which I love, I know it'll fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, what I find with Ear Hustle is that the, um, the humanity of these guys who are, you know... Describe Ear Hustle for those Ear, who don't Ear know. Ear Hustle is, um, at, is, is made at San Quentin Prison, um, and it is a collaboration between um, the, the woman who's you know, brought this podcast to San Quentin and then she has her other, her co-producer and partner is a prisoner. And then they have subject matter that for each one about questions that people have or questions that they want to explore about life behind bars. Mm -hmm. And what is so striking in hearing the voices of these really now invisible men is just their humanity, their complexity, their likability, the 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 longing, the things that they care about, and it just you'll you ne- you'll never look at a prison story the same mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question of mass incarceration, you think of in completely different terms just by getting to know these guys. So something like that just sort of informs me overall. Mm-hmm. And I know that somehow it's going to fit in, but I don't know how. Something like Crime Town, you know. It had a, a sort of sustainable character premise, this kind of collision course in some ways between the mayor of Providence and the mob boss of Providence. I went to college in Providence, so we know the way that that town worked. And um, we felt like there was enough there that we, in terms of a cast of characters and how they all kind of kept complicating each other's lives mm-hmm. that we'd be able to sustain a series based on it. So it sounds like most, and I know not all, but most of your calculation really is about the quality of the story and how you'll be able to tell it, and not necessarily as much as one might assume with you being a Hollywood executive about necessarily the market, right, or the audience, or how much does that come into play? Um, I'm a, a big believer that, you know, if something doesn't just grab me, like the mm-hmm. first and foremost, you know, the book you can't put down, the script you can't put down, the podcast you can't stop listening to, you know, th- any story that um, is irresistible, mm-hmm. um, if, 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 I, if I've had that reaction, I have to extrapolate and hope that other people will too. And that the more, um, you know, oftentimes I think the more individual something is, the more universal it is. Mm-hmm. The more you try to please people, the less people you please. And so I don't, I do think about, well, who would go see it, but I don't think about that first. I actually mostly think about the subjective experience of, I can't get this off my mind. Mm -hmm. And that that, the sort of human storytelling relationship, and if it has, if it brought me to the campfire, chances are it'll bring other people to. Oh, I like that, if it brought you to the campfire. So then, part of your role then, after identifying the great story is, a part of it is then identifying who are the right voices to tell that story. And so I know for the third season of American Crime Story, you're looking at a particular narrative in, um, in and around Hurricane Katrina. 
And I read that you um, specifically looked for um, black writers from the South, right, to, to fill up your, your writer's room. How important is diversity? In, I mean, to me, that seems like an obvious and a no-brainer. And yet, most of us know that when we look at content, we see stories that are written about women that don't have women in the writer's room, or stories that are written about people of color that don't have people of color in the writer's room. How important is it for you that that be um, a part of all of your projects? Which well, it's hugely important, because ultimately, um, you know, you can certainly immerse yourself in research, you can immerse yourself in asking questions, but ultimately, again, that subjective experience, you know, we each walk in the world in our own way, and there is no way for a white person to understand what it is to walk in the world as a not-white person. They're mm-hmm. just not. Mm-hmm. And there is no way to really understand what an OJ means or a Katrina means um, to the black community if you don't have voices who can sort of speak a, a truth about that themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, something, you know, at, at the same time, the challenge is, is that um, you know, something like we're about to go into production on a show called Pose, which is um, set in the, you know, ballroom scene um, in the 80s. You know, the world of Paris is burning, the ballroom scene of, you know, trans uh, kind of, you know, the houses that compete against each other. Mm-hmm. And um, we, the people who originated that story are cisgender men. Okay. But then we had to go and find as many voices as we could to bring in who we knew that obviously on camera we would have trans people, but it's not enough for it to be on camera. So then right. we had to go and recruit. Um, but where it gets challenging is that when you need your sort of senior writer, you know, it, Hollywood tends to be a backwards facing loop. So you're looking for people who have done something great before. And mm-hmm. you can say, oh, I loved, you know, the movie they directed I loved, the script that they wrote that turned into this show or that movie. Um, and so since so many of those positions have historically been occupied by white men, mm-hmm. it's hard to get the experienced person necessarily. There are some, but they are really in huge demand. Mm-hmm. And so, and especially right now, we're finally, at least there's some traction on the fact that there's an enormous market and appetite for more diverse and inclusive storytelling. A lot of the most seasoned people of color who are head writers, for instance, for a TV show, they're all spoken for. They're mm-hmm. telling their own stories. They're doing their own thing. And so you're having to break new talent mm-hmm. and bring them up in the system in hopes that they will become that person. But sometimes you still get stuck with kind of, you know, the people who've done it before mm-hmm. not necessarily being as diverse a group as you wish that they were because so many of those folks are spoken for. Yeah, I mean, I think that that conundrum, which I firmly believe is solvable, but it's true for many industries and not just Hollywood, right, that because white men have run most things yeah. uh, into the ground <clears throat> um, for a very, very long time, <laughs> right? For a very, very long time. And so you're having to find new talent and open doors and provide opportunities for folks who are, I think, ready and talented and willing um, and just need that opportunity. But you mentioned, you said, you know, kind of we're in this moment right now when diversity is in. Mm-hmm. And I'll even say when the conversation about diversity yeah, exactly. is in, right? Exactly. Of all types, whether you're talking about racial and ethnic, um, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of that is hot right now. And, and part of me is excited, right? I love turning on the television and seeing Issa Rae. I love having all of these options. 
And yet, even though I am a millennial, I remember television in the 90s, right? And the 90s, you had this kind of diversity of stories that were being told, and then it disappeared. So the cynic in me sometimes feels like, ah, this is just a cycle. This is a wave, people are feeling real nice, and then it'll disappear. You have your own perspective and vantage point from, from where you sit and having seen Hollywood and, and, and knowing what's happening now. I'm curious, what excites you about kind of the, the trend towards diversity? But if anything, what might concern you or make you cautious about it? Um, I mean, I, I don't think that this one, I don't think it's going to go away this time. I, I think that, for one, right. all of these great voices are being found and nurtured and um, I think you know, there are people like Ryan Murphy who's really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. He has, you know, the Half Foundation, every set of a show that we're doing together. There is, he's committed that half of the directors um, who he hires will be, you know, and, and personnel, but particularly on the writing and directing side, will be either women, people of color, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, not straight. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, there are, and so that opens the door to sort of a training of a next generation. But beyond that, these voices that are emerging, they now become those people who, when you're looking for somebody who's done something great, mm -hmm. next year, the mm -hmm. year after, you have Issa Rae or, you know, the, you know, Melina Matsukas or whoever it is to sort of, to now you can look at a body of work. Um, but beyond that, I also just think that the marketplace is proving people are sort of tired of the same old, same old. You can't just keep, you know, especially on the film side where, you know, television is really challenging film to be as original as television is right now, to be as um, surprising as television is right now. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just keep churning out the same old, same old. And so, you know, something like Crazy Rich Asians, a movie we just finished production on and that we're in post on now, um, it feels incredibly fun and fresh to see an all-Asian cast in a big mainstream romantic comedy. It just mm -hmm. feels like that's the reason to go to theater. I haven't seen that movie before. It doesn't right. feel like the umpteenth iteration of something I've seen a million times before. So I think that the appetite is there. Mm -hmm. And I think, and the successes are there. I mean, something like... Um, Hidden Figures was one of the most successful movies of its year. And, uh, you know, the, the number, you know, something like Straight Outta Compton, these movies also blow up some of the traditional um, mindset that the studios had. I just talked about this the other day um, at a panel, which is when I was coming up, I was told that, uh, well, you, don't you know that uh, Girls will identify with a male protagonist, but boys won't identify with a female protagonist. So mm -hmm. this was some sort of a, a scientifically known fact. <laughs> of um, course. And that's why you could cast a boy or a young man, and girls will identify with them. But if you cast a girl or a young woman, that would not, or a woman, it would not, it wouldn't work the other way. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not really just not true. And it's been proven to be not true over and over again. But every time we prove it, people act surprised, like it's a new newsflash. Um, but now you have, like, see, some of the most profitable movies of the last five, ten years are, you know, are driven by women, women on in front of the camera, you know, or say uh, something like a the other conventional wisdom. Oh, you know, black movies don't travel. Mm -hmm. You know, tell that to the folks who are cashing their checks from straight out of Compton. 
Right. <laughs> I love that. So let me ask you, you mentioned you, the, the word surprising. And when you said surprising, my ears perked up a little bit because I think sometimes we see storytellers and, and successful people in general, not just women, but just people who are um, you know, traditionally successful as kind of hitting a point in their life and career where they know it all, right? You have all the answers. What, <laughs> right? You, you clearly don't feel that way. No. Um, what surprises you on a daily basis, though, or not, not even on a daily basis? What has surprised you recently in, in your role? Role in this kind of journey of telling stories? What's new or interesting now about, about your work and about the industry? Well, I definitely, the reason I actually ended up getting into movies in the first place was that when I was in, in college, um, I, when I started studying film theory, um, it was the first thing I'd ever started to study where the more I learned, the less I knew. And that there was just sort of this bottomless pit of things you could watch, things you could read, things you could think about, things that you thought you understood but that you don't, or that you might look at it in a different way. Um, and again, I think it's part of my love of podcasts. It's just like all of these different voices, these different perspectives. Um, but I would say that, you know, I mean, on the one hand, what has, um, what has surprised me is, uh, you know, the, I guess, the degree to which, for one, I, I, audiences, especially in the TV space, they don't care where they're getting the story from. If it interests them, they'll find it. They don't care if it's on Hulu. They don't care mm -hmm. if, it, if it's a podcast versus a YouTube. Interesting stories are finding their audiences. Um, and yet, they're, and, and they couldn't be more different. And yet, they have also this sort of common thread of, which is the thing I always ask myself, every time, and it's funny because as long as I've done this, I only sort of had this like breakthrough epiphany about what I'm kind of a standard to meet on everything that I work on, which is I always ask myself these two questions. What do I want and what do I fear? If I want or fear something um, during the course of a story, I'm totally engaged, I'm all in. If I get to a place where I don't know what to want and I don't know what to be afraid of, don't open that door, don't go on that date. Um, oh, that, I was just know, about to ask you for an example yeah. when you say what you want and what you yeah, fear. So what you does look, that look like so in a story? So you look at, I mean, I just take a, you know, if you take a movie like Beauty and the Beast, let's say, mm -hmm. you, you deeply want for them to connect. You want him to stop being such a jerk so that they can connect and find each other. And you are incredibly afraid of the sort of you know, rage of the townspeople who are going to come and uh, tear them apart and destroy him, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. you, those two feelings, you're never without them. You're never without desire or fear. Mm -hmm. um, and so bringing that sort of standard to any kind of great storytelling, I mean, in, in, even like, let's say, something like S-Town, you know, you, are, you want him... Um, to sort of find his people and you want to, you want to solve this crime. You're mm -hmm. afraid that people are going to taste, you know, to, to exploit him. You know, you, you always have an, a, a vested interest. And so I've, I guess um, I'm surprised by how much that is true, no matter what it is that I'm taking in mm -hmm. um, and how, uh, and yet, and also, let's say, the kind of eclectic nature and hungry nature of an audience to find stories that speak to them, mm -hmm. regardless of medium. They don't care what channel. They don't care what studio. They don't care really even what medium. They just want things to speak to them. Yeah. So we've talked about, I would almost categorize this conversation into two different topics. 
Um, one is we've talked a lot about story, storytelling, your creative process. And then the other, we've talked about diversity and inclusion and representation. And they all sound very nice and neat and simple here when you're talking about them on a panel. But on a day-to-day -day basis and in practice, there's risk involved in both of those things. There's risk involved in telling deeply personal stories. and. I mean, frankly, there's risk involved in putting that much money into telling these stories, and there's risk involved in kind of um, pushing the limits around diversity inclusion. So, and I think the fear, you mentioned fear, I think fear stops a lot of people from doing both of those things. Fear stops people from creating and telling great stories, a story that is like burning inside of them. And fear also stops people from kind of stepping out on a limb and doing what they know is right for an issue that they care about or community that they care about. So I want to ask you, having done both, um, what's a time where you got it wrong? Um, you know, I, I mean, I do, I think that the, um, well, what get, got which part wrong? Take your pick. So either, either, oh my gosh, I thought this was the right story for me to tell. I thought it was great, and man, it just wasn't. Uh, or I was doing my best to like really carry the banner here, the torch for diversity and inclusion, and I screwed up so bad. Um, I mean, the the main thing that I think I do think there is a lot of fear, by the way, and I think that uh, you know I was talking to an. A kind of a colleague of mine at one point about this, which is that I think you know they're in creative, in, cre in, in, in sort of a collective creative on enterprise. There's actually a, should be a lot of healthy, respectful friction, mm -hmm. a lot of pull, push and pull, back and forth, and um, when and I think that oftentimes that people are more comfortable knowing that they're going to have fights, arguments, and they can all be done with respect, but you're going to have a lot of push and pull. People are often more comfortable having it with somebody who looks like them. Mm -hmm. And they're, because they're afraid that they're gonna say the wrong thing, they're gonna ask the wrong question, um, they're gonna step in it. They're gonna inadvertently be accused of, of being a sexist if it's a guy, of being a racist if it's a white person. And, um, and, and yet, and that fear of being that I'm going to somehow be politically incorrect actually ends up holding people back from, mm -hmm. go ahead, make some mistakes. It's better to make some mistakes mm -hmm. and ask some dumb questions than to be afraid to, to take that. Say it for the people in the back, Nina. Um, so, <laughs> um, and, uh, but I mean, I would say, you know, a, uh, I mean, a case of sort of, realizing that we had gone astray was something like uh, Katrina. We put together an incredible room on the first iteration of Katrina. Mm -hmm. um, amazing people. We set out to have, be inclusive. We set out to make sure that we told the, as much as we could uh, the full complexity of the story. And this of, is the writer's room you're talking the about? The writer's room for okay. Katrina. Yes. Sorry. Yep. And so, and then we, and we were ready to go. I mean, we were, it was supposed to be the second season of the show. Um, and we had cast it. Mm -hmm. We were gearing up to go into a, you know, hard pre-production. And we just looked at it and we were like, you know, it's not as personal as we want it to be. It's not as complex as we want it to be. It's not as, as hard as we have tried. It's not um, as compelling. I don't know um, that it is, it's not as good as it has to be. No mm -hmm. matter how right the process might have been, if it's not good enough, mm -hmm. if it's not compelling enough, then we're not doing justice to it at all. And we had to do the really painful thing of calling people and saying, sorry, but we're not gonna go. We're not mm -hmm. gonna do it now. 
Mm -hmm. We're going to pull forward um, Versace, which is ready to go. Mm -hmm. That's now the second season. Now the second season. And we're going to uh, reconceive our approach to make it more personal, more intimate, to focus on this book, Five Days at Memorial, which is sort of a microcosm of the larger Katrina story. And it touches on all of the same themes and ideas, but it does so in a way that is really intimate, really character-based, really challenging, mm-hmm. and that felt, we, the, our best two episodes that we had were those two. Mm-hmm. And we were that like- were of this smaller story within yeah. the broader Katrina narrative. Yeah. Take me back to the moment when you made the decision that, ugh, this, this ain't gonna work and we gotta pull back, right? Because that's, that's a big deal. It was huge. It was really hard. It was very hard. You know, we were lucky to have partners who trusted us because it's hard. It's very painful. It's embarrassing to say, sorry, I know you think you're doing this next as an, to an actor you have, you know, contracted with. And, but ultimately, the, the making something that you know isn't as good as it should be, could be, has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what the expense of not doing it is, the expense of doing it is greater, not just because mm. it may or may not succeed, but because you're trying to build um, a brand and a brand equity. And you want to make sure that people know when they watch this show, it's going to challenge them and it's going to push them. And that, uh, but it was hard. It was, a, it was a tough, tough call to make mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. A, a bunch of tough calls. Um, and yet... And that doesn't, that's not to say that the room that we will now put together in the reboot won't yeah. be also an inclusive room. Right. But we had a wonderful group of people, and we disbanded and started over. So how do you know, and the, in, in the end, when it's all said and done, with a particular film project or TV project, any creative endeavor, how do you, Nina, when you go home, decide that was a success for me? Um, you know, I just... I want it to matter. I want it to matter. It takes an enormous amount of time, money, energy. It takes me away from my family. And um, if something mattered, if it mattered to, I oftentimes think about, you know, because I have kids, I think about, you know, with Crazy Rich Asians, I think about what it'll be like for a, you know, an Asian girl to drive down the street on her way to school and see a big giant poster for a Hollywood movie mm-hmm. with somebody who looks like her. Uh-huh. Um, with something like OJ for people to say, you know, I I hated Marcia Clark, I hated Chris Darden, or I hated Johnny Cochran, but now I kind of get them, or I was surprised that mm-hmm. there was more to that than I thought. Um, anytime that you kind of give people an emotional access to something that they... Th- th- and a compassion for people that they might not otherwise have it for... Mm-hmm. That feels like it matters. Anytime that you give, a, like, say, a, you know, for a little girl to look up to Katniss Everdeen, or for, you know, um, a guy to realize, like, that, I, I want to be her. I, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you, when some, when it matters, then it feels like a success. Um, sometimes that, hopefully, it's a financial success. Sometimes something might matter, and it doesn't necessarily succeed at the level you wish it did. But then. Because you're, go- you're going to make mistakes. And so if you're going to make mistakes, you still want to know that it matters. What's one thing? So you're now speaking to an audience of creators of some kind, right? Whether they are themselves podcasters, producers, engineers, or people who are just tangentially connected to the industry of creating and storytelling. 
What's one piece of advice that you would give this room, um, in particular a room full of women um, who are in, in various stages of this journey of being storytellers and creators in the world? What's one piece of advice you would tell them? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that um, the, the thing I strive for is kind of a balance between conviction and, you know, a, the courage to have your own voice, to say what you think and be able to articulate it and, and reach people with what you have to say in any given room, in any given creative endeavor, with as great of a humility and receptivity, mm. um, that there is a strength in receptivity that I think women fundamentally understand. And what do you that, mean by receptivity when you say that? that? You, being able to accept that the best idea might come from any quarter, mm -hmm. that in any conversation, in any debate, there is a 50-50 chance that you are wrong. You might be right, you might mm -hmm. be wrong, and your position doesn't make you any more likely to be right. Mm -hmm. You can be the most senior person in the room, you can be the most powerful person in the room. It doesn't mean that you're any more likely to be right. Mm -hmm. The person who might have the best idea, that's the, the idea, the free market economy of ideas, that's what should prevail. And so ultimately, being able to listen to your own voice, but actually also have a great interest in the voice of others, I think it's something women do understand. It's something that women can, it's, it's a balancing act because it's very easy to be afraid to be outspoken, afraid to be, uh, you know, that kind of girl. Mm -hmm. And you gotta be that kind of girl. But you can still be that kind of girl and be able to let somebody else uh, prevail because mm -hmm. you actually think that what they had to say made sense and made and was the the more compelling solution or the more compelling way to tell that story. Well, Nina, thank you for being compelling, for having a lot to say, and for being that kind of girl today. I really appreciate the conversation. <laughs> thank and thank you all so much. Thank you. That was Erica Williams-Simon and Nina Jacobson speaking at the 2017 Orchid Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com. Mm -hmm.